Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Welcome to Move Your Mind. My name is Nick Brax, and this is a podcast where we have real conversations with real people and give real advice. On today's episode, I want to welcome former Olympic athlete, sports physician and media personality, Dr. Peter Larkins. Peter is a Foundation Fellow of the Australasian College of Sports Physicians and a Foundation Fellow of the Faculty of Sports and Exercise Medicine in the UK. He's represented Australia as a competitor in middle distance running at Olympic Commonwealth and World Cup competitions and was captain of the Australian track and field team in 1983. He served as a board member of Sports Medicine Australia and is on multiple committees for medical and government organisations. Yeah, Peter, thank you so much for coming on my new podcast, Move Your Mind. I've known you for a long, long time, actually. Uh, I remember you helping me when I was a a young kid as an athlete and uh, enjoying your stories about you being an athlete and talking about people like Steve Prefontaine and there's a long sort of backstory to, to knowing you, but uh, I'm really you know grateful to have you on here today and to be able to just have a chat about mental health, the work you do, the current situation in the world right now, and whatever else comes up. So um, thank you for coming on. Yeah, Nick, congratulations on what you've done so far. I've been sort of trying to follow you from a distance. It's great that we've connected again. And uh, as you say, uh, I think you're a very young schoolboy when we first crossed paths, you know, <laughs> related to some of your athletic pursuits. Yeah, here we are, you know, you've, uh, well, I guess we're, we're sort of, you know, 15 to 20 years later and uh, a lot of things have happened to both of us. Oh, it's amazing how much time passes and um, you definitely were not talking too much about yourself. I was fascinated by it all. It was pretty rare for me to, to meet someone that had that connection to athletics in America and different people that I had idolised and grown up really wanting to emulate. So it was, um, it was, yeah, a great experience for me to be able to sort of talk to you about all of that. Yeah, I've been lucky, Nick, that sports played a, such a critical part in my life. And now professionally, I still work in the sort of sports and exercise medicine field and exercise being the critical part of now where a lot of my work goes because the benefits to the whole community of being active and exercising. But sport really determined what I did from a very young age at school. It you know, gave me my competitive career. And then, of course, sports medicine, as it was just known on its own at the time, I just thought, I've just got to do that. That's the thing I wanted to do. And it allowed me to have an incredible uh, time to travel and, and compete and, and meet up with some of these uh, incredibly iconic athletes that I had the chance to mix with. Yeah, I can imagine. And that, that's sort of the first question I have for you. Can, you know, I just want to learn, you know, a little bit more about your background. How did you, how did you uh, initially, how did you become an athlete? How did that all come about? And um, can we just, yeah, a quick overview of how you got to where you are today? Yeah, well, I mean, it, it, it has just shaped my life, sport. I mean, I, I was lucky enough to grow up in Geelong, which you know well as a city has, has got yeah. a great sort of uh, great place to live. I went to school there. I went to a boys' school where sport was a big part of the program. So whilst academic achievement was always the priority and that was drilled into at the school I was at, but, but academically um, that was on the cards. But sport, you had so many options of sport. You know, the opportunity to do football, cricket, um, handball as it was at the school that I did but athletics was the thing I drifted into because I had an older brother 
who was quite successful as a runner, quite a bit older than me, 12 years older. So he was a big age gap. Uh, and he was a really good distance runner, cross country runner. And I used to really, uh, I suppose, aspire to sort of some of the trophies that he brought home. And I remember as a four year old Nick racing him down the back laneway of our farm when he brought home a cross country trophy. And he was obviously 16 and I was. Um, I was only four, but he let me win the race. And so I thought I was a better runner than my 16-year-old brother because I actually won the race and had the trophy sitting next to me. By <laughs> so I put a real competitive streak into me at a quite a young age. And school allowed that to flourish because they encouraged sport. Yeah, yeah, great. Um, and it probably having that experience probably gave you the confidence and belief in yourself to to be able to, you know, really push for everything else you did because I think really whatever it is we're doing in life especially sport a lot of it is it's all psychology it's it's having that belief system having that discipline having the the mindset to be able to you know do these daily habits that no one else is going to make us do if we don't do them ourselves we're not going to be able to stick to it yeah it's a great point Nick you know one of the things you have to have a natural hunger or competitive drive to enjoy what you do very yep. hard to be successful at something if you don't enjoy doing it. It doesn't matter whether it's sport or whether it's a professional career. You know, it, it is one of the things about individual sports. I mean, I had the opportunity at school, as I say, to play cricket and, and particularly Aussie rules football, which I quite enjoyed and, and was doing reasonably well at as, as the captain of the school footy team. But athletics eventually drifted into the sport that I probably identified with most because the onus was on yourself. If you didn't make mm-hmm. the effort, there were no teammates. There was no one to blame. If you lost the race because you didn't perform well or didn't try hard enough, you just looked at yourself in the mirror. It might seem like a selfish thing to be to be going into as a sport. It really was one where you had to be accountable to yourself in a, in a lot of ways. You see, so uh, mm. and and you know, having met some of the world champions, world record holders, gold medalists at Olympic level through the opportunity that I had when I eventually got an international career. I didn't meet any of them that weren't a bit eccentric. They were all very self-driven people, driven to get the best out of themselves. You had to be a bit weird to be a world champion, but it was all about that sacrifice and the discipline that you put together. And I think that whilst, I, you know, I think there were some good parts to them, they were still people that really were very focused on what they did. And I think that's one of the reasons why Olympic athletes, they're highly sought after because they're known to be dedicated people. They're known to be disciplined people. They're known to be organised because as an athlete, you have a timetable where you're looking at when the next championships are, when the next selection is going to be, when's the next challenge you've got to meet. But in, in the world of um, business, you also have to be organised and disciplined and be able to apply yourself. And so a lot of athletes have done well afterwards if they've had that opportunity because they're seen as achievers, I guess. Yeah, massively. I mean, that that's such a good point. I think like you were saying before, which was is one of the things I want to ask you about um, with athletes, sort of how they manage their mental health after their careers, but it can really go either way. Uh, you can take the, the skill sets that you learn through it can be uh, foundations for whatever we do, even with managing our well-being. You know, it, it, it's all habits. I guess through all the work you've done, have you seen examples on either side of the spectrum where it can go the other way as well when that sort of um, attachment to the sport and to the, the competition is taken away, people sort of falling apart from it. Yeah, absolutely, Nick. I mean, it's a, it's a real danger for athletes if they become too narrow in their focus and don't have a balance in what they do. And, um, you know, it can be a real letdown when suddenly you're not on the top of the pedestal anymore, particularly if you've been very nurtured and then suddenly you're not there anymore. Your injury might stop you or it might be that your age catches up with you. 
And so I mean, there's a whole world out there that you haven't had to deal with as an individual because unfortunately you've probably been, as I said, pandered to. And people really uh, struggle to adapt to suddenly not being the center of attention anymore. Mm-hmm. And, and so I think, you know, as an athlete, I had a, a course that I was doing in medicine. I, I knew there was a career afterwards. It was a real balance between trying to study and, and still compete internationally. And I think you've really got to have an interest outside, whether it's starting up a little business, whether it's having some studies that you do, because it's going to end. I mean, there's no athlete that's not going to end their career. And there's yeah. really more time after your career than there is during your career. Now, there's a lot more life after 30, right? So the, the issue really is you've got to be preparing yourself. And so I've seen athletes that just haven't transitioned well at all. And, and so I think this is where I think psychologists have had an incredible role to play in sport and developed over the last few years. Because people think psychologists are there to rev people up to motivate you to perform. Athletes instinctively are pretty good at that. There's a few that might need some fine tuning on how to do that well. But what the psychologist's role ought to be is how to deal with adversity, how to deal with setbacks, how to deal with failure, because that's the important thing that an athlete needs to learn. And that can then transfer into be preparing for life after sport. And I think that's something we've probably tried to do reasonably well through the Institute of Sport and some of the other things. And I think AFL football teams have got welfare offices these days, Nick. So, yes, there are people that don't transition well because they don't get it and they don't adapt to or think about it early enough. And then there are people, as I said, who have been successful at sport who just transfer that drive and transfer that energy and that that discipline into their working career and and are successful. There's always going to be the two groups that have to be dealt with. Absolutely. And, you know, a lot of that really relates to all other areas of life. I mean, I was having a conversation with someone the other day And I remember when I was in my early 20s and initially competing in sport and then working in the entertainment industry and feeling like if I don't succeed in the next year, two years, three years' time, my life's a failure. If I don't have everything by the age of 30, 30 was this number where that, in my mind, was the end of my life. And I'm 33 years old now and I'm I'm thinking about, well, I'm still young. I mean, I hope I live a long life and if I do, I want to be doing all the things I'm doing until the day I die and that gives you a lot of time and I think I think the a lot of anxiety comes from us putting these unrealistic pressures on ourselves and time frames and if we can learn to just be have goals but not control the outcomes because we can't control that. That's where success can come and and more importantly just you know quality of life and removing a lot of that anxiety because we just you know we can't control it yeah i think being flexible in your time frames is a really good point that you made nick because we all need goals i mean i think that's again coming back to the sport analogy people were setting goals to compete in in tokyo at the olympics this year they were setting goals for some of the triathletes that i work with who wanted to go to the world championships this year and there's sometimes with the sport, there's a defined date because, you know, if I'm not ready for this particular date, I've lost my chance. But you have to be flexible with other achievements in life because if you're so rigid in your thinking that if you say, I have to do this by 25 or I have this by, I can tell you now mm. that, that life, life, you've got to be flexible. Things don't work. Most things take longer than you expect in life. You know, not everyone gets what they want to get. It's great to be working towards things. But having that ability to deal with a setback is a great thing. I mean, again, it's what sports people do. Not everyone wins everything. So there are setbacks in life. And so, you know, it's important to to know how to win, but it's important to know how to lose because in life there's going to be setbacks. And so I think that's the issue that if you, if you really get develop anxiety or develop, if your, if your sense of self-esteem is purely based on succeeding all the time, 
then clearly you're going to get into trouble at some stage. And that's where the rigidity mm. of people's thinking has to be um, made more flexible and more fluid um, through through the help of some counselling or through some help of a good coach or mentor that allows people to, to set that, particularly once they get into the real world. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think reframing how we look at, you know, losing or failing, looking at it more more so as this is learning because we often learn the most from our failures. Yeah, I think you answered it pretty much already, but you know, I was going to ask you, you've you've been an Olympic athlete, you're now an incredibly successful sports physician, you're a media personality, uh, you do a lot of community work amongst, you know, many other things. What would you say has been the real key to to your ongoing success and being able to have these different different success in many different areas of professional life? I think one of the keys is variety and, and having new things to look forward to and, and not being fixed on, on just doing one thing. I mean, the other thing is just being motivated and organised and setting challenges and, and really having setting a goal to, to achieve something. So it's priding yourself on getting the best out of yourself. That doesn't mean you're the best at doing it, but you're getting the best out of yourself at what you're doing. And so I think that's something that, that I've always looked at because, you know, a lot of the things you do, the person that's going to judge you is the person look at you in the mirror in the morning. So my success has really been based on me feeling like getting the best out of myself at what I do, whether that's helping people in a medical sense, whether that's some of the, uh, the community work. The media work I really enjoy because I've always enjoyed education. I think my media work is educating people and I try to keep it in a simple language. So, so that sort of stuff is really just me wanting to sort of um, do something that's been a challenge for me and I've been lucky to do some things that other people haven't done but at the end of the day my judgment is really whether I've done a good job is, is I judge myself rather than worrying about what other people say. Yeah and that's what I love most about the answer you've just given there I think saying that it's about always pushing yourself being uh, putting that pressure on yourself personally to get the most out of yourself and try different things and have that variety but not basing it on I need to do this to impress this person or to achieve this or to beat this person or to emulate this because that that's where anxiety and depression comes from. We're all, especially more than ever in this society where it's just so, you know, we're drowning in social media and this capitalistic sort of society where everyone wants more, more, more. I want to have this. I want to be like that person. And you can never be happy. But if you can really strip it back and think it doesn't matter, we're all on our own journey. There's no possible way to, you know, to compare two separate lives. They're all, they're different. If we can just look at improving ourselves and getting the most out of ourselves, it's a pretty simple formula and it often leads to pretty good results and, you know, makes you feel good. It's a lot more simple. I think the external pressures have never been as great. And I think that, you know, coming back to the sport again, that, that's something that a lot mm. of sports struggle with because when you look at the way people are judged by their performance with all these fan commentaries that can go on blogs and, they can, you know, obviously there's Twitter and all, mm. all the media uh, options that are available. That didn't exist for me as an athlete. I'm, you know, it was great. I didn't have to worry about that sort of criticism. You know, now I think athletes, they tend to fixate a little bit too much on that. And so one of the things that the counsellors and the psychologists will talk about for an athlete who's struggling with performance and, and with their self-esteem is to just switch off from what other people are saying. Come back to look at what you believe in your own goals. Have some faith in yourself. I mean, you know, the best decisions you make are often the intuitive decisions that you feel are right for you. But I think it's important to go back to that, not be judging by what other people say. It doesn't mean you seek, don't seek advice. And I think one of the you know people that are struggling, one of the greatest things they can do is have a mentor or have someone that they can speak to. It doesn't have to be a professional counsellor, but clearly that's more acceptable these days. So there's a lot more 
attached to that, but I still think the stigma is still there in the bid. We might come back to that, but but I think as you say, there's there's a greater awareness. There's certainly a, a more willingness for people to put their hand up, and whether it's a sports person, whether it's a politician, whether it's a um, an entertainment industry person, we've seen so many people put their hand up and say, "I'm struggling." And going back to basics and getting some advice is, is more available than ever now. But a lot of that is because people are concerned about the external criticism they're getting. And often that's that's just a loud minority that's making that sort of noise. Um, and that's why you really sometimes have to have some people around you that are supportive and, and know you as a person and, and can and help you with that. Absolutely. Absolutely. And we will, you know, I want to ask you a few more questions about that and that area. And we, we will get into that in a second, but I know you're really big on this. Um, you're actually telling me the other day how a long, long while ago, you've been looking into exercise for mental wellbeing. Um, can you tell me a bit more about that? How, how important it is, uh, is our, is, you know, looking after our exercising for our mental health? incredible at the moment there's been you know i mean i've all, always been involved in promoting exercise as a fitness thing and you know and, and initially we talked about sport and so i was interested in the competitive side of sport the more i got into practice over the past 15 to 20 years my practice has more been the middle-aged people and i've been promoting exercise initially because because of the established physical physiological benefits nick and we know about heart disease we talk about diabetes we talk about stroke we even talk about um, some incredible research now on exercise in either reducing the incidence of cancers or helping people that have got cancer to respond better to treatment. We've always talked about that for decades. People don't take up the message very easily because we still have bad lifestyle behaviours. Mm-hmm. But one of the things I really transitioned to when I started to look at more of the role of exercise, not sport, but exercise in health promotion, was incredible mental health benefits that were being documented and recognised for people. And it goes back to the 1980s when there were studies um, right back to Stanford University. I, I read a study many years ago looking at people that were being treated with medication for depression and anxiety who were introduced to a regular exercise program as in a group setting because they often felt isolated. They often felt in their brain was scrambled. And, and exercise showed that these people either reduced their need for medication, Nick, or some of them even got off medication just mm. through regular exercise. And initially on, on surface value, it looked like that might just be because of the social interaction, which is incredibly important, by the way, regardless mm. of age. But as studies went by, we saw that there was actually a neurochemical component to that. So the things that cause the brain to go off track in relation to, to mental health disorders, whether it's anxiety or depression or even some of the more extreme um, mental conditions, was often associated with a chemical imbalance, important things like dopamine or serotonin. And it was shown that exercise actually had a positive benefit on these chemicals being produced. So when you talk about medication for people with mental health, they're often talking these um, psychotropic drugs that are altering the chemicals in the brain to stabilise people. And, yeah. and, you know, getting the dose right can be critical. But exercise actually does that. And so I really then started to see the value of the mental health benefits from people that got out and did some exercise. You know, it just gave you some personal space. It gave you some stress relief. I used to say, you know, even I long ago stopped running competitively. I used to say I used to run because it was either that or pay a psychiatrist to keep me, uh, <laughs> keep me from, you know, really getting the stress. And and, I, and to that very day, I still think that's accurate. Sometimes when you're just having a bad day, you just get out. You let the pressure valve out by going out and doing some exercise. Massively. You know, just topically at the moment, as you know, we're in the middle of a corona pandemic. And one of the four things we're, we're encouraged to do, that we're allowed to go out of the house. You can go to work. You can go and do some shopping. You can go for a medical appointment or you can exercise. That's it. That's mm-hmm. the four things. 
Isn't it fantastic that exercise is recognised as a big part of what society needs? And, yeah. and I've been really incredibly impressed over the last couple of weeks around where I am in Melbourne, seeing the number of people that are around Albert Park Lake or walking along Beaconsfield Parade in Middle Park and Albert Park exercising. And, and it's socially interaction. Uh, it's, it's families doing things they hadn't done together as a group before. And I think that's a really important part. And just the final part about why exercise is really critical at this stage, Nick, is it improves immune function. So here we are talking about wanting to keep ourselves from developing any of these viral infections, whether it's the flu or whether it's corona. So, so the, the research on what exercise does has been so impressive that I don't want to sound like an evangelist too much, but it is a big part of what I preach to people about looking after your own health. The greatest prevention that we've got is exercise across the things, like I said, diabetes, heart disease, stroke, cancers, but mental health, which is, you know, one in four people will experience some sort of mental health distress at some stage in their life. So the work that I do a little bit these days in the corporate health space, I talked about people about asset protection and their asset is their personal health, whether it's emotional health, spiritual health or physical health. And I divide that in my talk. Uh, I couldn't agree with you more. It's what I believe in and the work that I do, it's all around preventative measures. It's around, you know, using things like exercise, creating habits, meditation, things like that. But same thing for me, exercise above everything. I, I, it's, it's almost hard to believe how much it helps. And I train every day and it just, it's that reset. I know whenever I'm having a really bad day or overwhelmed, just going out there and getting yourself moving, it, it, it's profound how much it helps. And most people can vouch for that. And like you're saying, there is so much reactive service out there. There's so much money put into that. And that's really important. That has to be there to, to be able to, you know, help in those areas. But why are we not putting, you know, the same sort of effort into preventative? Because that really is the way we make the longer term change. We become more sustainable, create, you know, just healthier lives for for people. And and ultimately, it will save money if it's if it's implemented effectively. So it's it's such an important thing, you know, that needs to. It's very very slowly happening. It's still much more about the reactive side, but yeah, we need that that shift to happen. We know that athletes are typically looked at as fit people. Like people look at athletes, they tend not to be overweight, they think they reasonably eat well, they train hard. They say, oh, I can never be an athlete. So we're not trying to set goals for people to have to train at Olympic or, or athlete level. We're talking about really quite low levels of intensity and exposure, but consistent exposure, because people will think, oh, it's, it's going to be too intimidating. But the greatest benefit that you get in health benefits is going from doing absolutely nothing to doing 1,000 calories expenditure per week in the old language. What is 1,000 calories? It's about 50, 60 minutes of walking in a week, not a day. In a week. A week. Wow. That's a now, that, that amount going from absolutely no regular exercise in your life to doing one hour per week of cardio. So I'll talk about why strength and flexibility are important in a minute. But cardio exercises, yep. original research was done, Nick, a 25% reduction in all-cause mortality. All-cause mortality means that all the reasons that someone might die, heart disease, stroke, cancer, diabetic complications. Now, the sweet spot when you get the maximum benefit from exercising is 150 minutes a week. So a lot of folk will hear about this magical 150 minutes a week. You see it advertised all the time. So it's 30 minutes five times a week. Now, the reason that 150 minutes is mentioned, that's when you hit the 40% reduction. So the maximal reduction is around about 150 to 200 minutes per week of exercise to get the health benefits that we talked about, cholesterol lowering, blood pressure lowering, weight control, 
but the mental health benefits start kicking in in that early phase as well. So it really, people just start off by moving. Movement is medicine, as I say. So you've only got to do a five-minute walk today to start exercising. You do five today, you do five tomorrow, you do five. suddenly you're getting up. And within a week or two, you're going to hit that 60 minutes a week pretty easily. And suddenly you've got a 25% reduction in the health benefits. So, so it's not sport that we're encouraging people to do, Nick. It's just to be physically active. And that's 30 minutes per day, which people get encouraged to do. It doesn't have to be one block of 30. It could be three 10-minute blocks. So if you do 10 minutes in the morning, 10 minutes at lunchtime and 10 minutes in the afternoon, you're actually still getting a cumulative 30 minutes in the course of your day. So the 150 minutes is an ultimate target, but people that are sitting there on the couch today saying, oh, I can't do 30 minutes. Of course you can't because you'll get injured. You'll end up in my office with an injury if you do 30 minutes. <laughs> but you do start off slowly and you build up from doing five minutes a day to 10 minutes a day to 20 minutes a day. And then suddenly you're hitting the 60, 70, 80 minutes per week. So the health benefits we're talking about can be, you know, can really um, kick in pretty quickly. And then you've got to be consistent at doing it. It's it's profound, like, like we said before, that it's not a lot that people need to do. Uh, and I guess, you know, we're built to move and we're not built to just be sitting all day every day as society's become. And I, I really think the biggest thing is just how, yeah, it's, it's the habit formation that helping people understand and implement it and eventually be able to prescribe it like... Um, they're prescribing drugs, prescribe exercise, I mean, sorry, to help with um, our mental well-being. Well, there's no question, Dick. I mean, there's no medication in the world that has a 25% reduction in all-cause mortality diseases in the world. There's only yeah. one of that is called physical activity. So you yeah. know, all these diabetes drugs, all these heart drugs, the blood pressure drugs, you think of them, they all work in a single area. They don't work across a whole range of medical conditions. Exercise works across the whole range of medical conditions, including some strength training, which I want to come back to if we can. Because mm -hmm. Please, yeah. Strength training improves mental health. We've always known strength training improves muscle tone and, and can help with stabilising around a sore knee or a sore shoulder. We build up the muscles, Nick. But in fact, strength training has now been shown to cause those neurochemical changes, again, which transfer into other areas like blood pressure and heart disease and diabetes. So... This medication called exercise is just right in front of everyone. It's a mm. matter of not being intimidated about how much you have to do and to start slowly and to build up through it. But exercise is medicine. That's the theme we have to be getting through. And as I said, it's, it's so important because it will reduce healthcare costs. Yeah. And the other thing, just while we're talking about the time that people need to do, because people say, oh, time's my problem. I don't have time. Well, one of the great things has been all these um, technology through Zoom and through apps and things have come along. But we're actually talking about people doing one hour per week, Nick. You know, and, and even at the 150 minutes a week. So let's put, let's look do some maths here. We've all got 168 hours in a week. I don't have more than that. You don't have more than that. That's all we've all got. I'm asking people to aim for 150 minutes a week. You know what that represents? That's 1.5% of our week, Nick, to invest in your personal health. 1.5%. People spend more than 1.5% of their life on things that aren't healthy at all. Isn't it, isn't it crazy when you put 1.5% away? And, and that's what I say to people in my seminars when I talk. I said, how, you know, you invest in your future. You have a superannuation plan. You're investing in your life. People put savings plans in place. They're saving for a beach house. They're saving for, for this. They're not, what if you don't, what if you're not here? What if you're not here in the mm -hmm. future? What if you don't look after your health? There's no point having a mm -hmm. beach house and a lot of money in superannuation. You should be investing in your health, that 1.5%. Forget about the 12% superannuation that your employer is putting into your bank account. 
So I try to make it in simple language for people, Nick, because, you know, people identify with that. And, you know, the most popular sport in the world by participation on a worldwide population basis? The most popular activity, like out of... Out of all the physical activity exercise things in the world, um, we think the most popular... Oh, I'd say walking or... Yeah, it's actually Tai Chi. Tai Chi. Wow. More, more people practice this 3,000-year-old activity than any other activity in the world, even walking. Isn't that amazing? Oh my God, and yeah. When you think of Tai Chi, what age group do you tend to think of? Oh, I would think of an older age group for Tai Chi. Yeah. Because it's so appropriate for the older age. and But that's mind training as well. It's a bit of zen. There's a bit of yoga attached to it, but there's balance training. It's movement training. Tai Chi is almost the complete exercise, Nick. From a cardio point of view, walking is really important, like you alluded to. But Tai Chi is actually the most popular physical activity exercise in the world. I found that out when I was doing my research. And it's it's, it's literally a couple of thousand years old as as a sport. It's it's older than soccer. It's older than the Olympia. There's no sport that's older than Tai Chi. It's incredible, isn't it? But you think of it and you think of it's practiced by older people because it's actually accessible for older people. It's a simple form of balance and strength to prevent falls, to help bone density, but it's mentally very, very disciplined. And it's one of the things about Tai Chi. It's it's sort of that combination of meditation and yoga, as, as you probably know. So it's something I've learned when I've been sort of looking at the benefits of exercise and trying to make things that are easily accessible to people which is one of the things you can do Tai Chi. You can do a little video in front of your, your TV or just an app, and it's it's really good to do right now during this pandemic. Yeah, anyone can do it. And it's obviously, you know, the oldest technique there for a reason. It's still going today. There's all these people using it because of the benefit from it. And and like you're saying, it's like mindful movement. You're you're getting the physical benefit. You're getting the mind benefit. You're having to put your your mind in that present moment. You sort of it is that all in one exercise, and it's low impact, so anyone can do it. Um, it's these are the things we need. Yeah, and there's, yeah. There's breathing. Breathing is part of it, Nick. So you know, there's breathing movements that go with that. I mean, it it's fascinating. So you yep. know. I mean, a well-balanced exercise program has has three components, right? It's got the cardio, which we've talked about, the 100 to 150 minutes, and that's where most of the research would be looking at um, heart heart improvement, diabetes, um, those sort of things, and the mental health. But then strength training is really important for the reasons I'm going to tell you now. Strength training has been shown to help muscle strength and balance and stop falls for people so they don't have injuries from you know nursing home where people fall over today, break their hip and end up in hospital and sometimes mm. they complicate. So strength training is well known for that, which is really what Tai Chi is. It's strength and balance training. But strength training has also been studied the last 10 to 15 years looking at the benefits on mental health. So people doing strength training actually feel motivated and they feel some self-esteem and they can see some changes. It also transfers into diabetes, cardiac disease, even some cancers. So incredible new research, particularly coming out of the States on that. And the third component, other than cardio and strength, is the flexibility or range of motion work, which is where yoga, I guess, is popular. Because again, what happens to people, they, they feel awkward getting out of a chair because their hips, their hips are stiff or they can't get upstairs because they're, they're knees. So doing some flexibility work. Again, yoga is probably popular in, in, in the format. But that actually happens with Tai Chi as well because you go through these you know, lovely movements and range of motion, mm. low, as you said. So we put the three components together, uh, not necessarily on the same day, but you suddenly got a really well-balanced exercise program to save those, those illness care costs. 
and, uh, and, and very accessible to people. And I think that's something that we, 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 well, I'll continue to sort of look at promoting that as much as I can. Well, we need people like you doing it because it is. It's what's more important. I mean, it's like the point you made before. Why do we try and strive for all these different things? You know, make retirement plans, try and, you know, make money, you know, dedicate our lives to, to doing all these different things if we can't enjoy it. And, and, you know, enjoying the process as well, being healthy while we do it, not killing ourselves in the process. It, it, it's, it's illogical. It's actually insane when you think about it. It's hard to get yeah, your head around. <laughs> yeah, it's like human nature, you know, like people, yeah. people just apply and adapt and change. I mean, it's something that, you know, uh, you know, look at the current situation we're going through, Nick. I mean, I'm so impressed with the way people have adapted to these world changes. This is a global yeah. thing. You know, you've yeah. never experienced it. I've never experienced it. So yeah. but maybe there's behaviour change that because we've seen what people are capable of doing, they'll realise about the importance of health and immunity and, and personal hygiene and things like that. Great message coming out of that, regardless of whether it's corona or just influenza in the future, because colds and influenza are spread exactly the same way that we're trying to prevent corona spread. Yeah. Um, so there's going to be a health benefit out of that. But I think just coming back to personal behaviour change, this is what we've seen with people, where they've adapted to the restrictions and all those things. So that's what we have to do. I mean, I say to all my patients, you've got to be prepared to live to 100 and they laugh at me. They're sitting there and they're 70-year-old with a sore knee and I'm saying I'm trying to get your knee right so you can play golf and walk and exercise. And they go, oh, I'm going to live to 100. If you exercise, you know you're going to reduce your chances of either getting this condition. And, and medical technology is changing so fast, Nick, with the developments and, and new treatments that are coming along. So, you know, for, for heart disease and for certain cancers and for diabetes, if people are unfortunate enough to contract one of those illnesses, the medical care is getting better. So people aren't dying yeah. from them like they did when your grandparents' age group or your great-grandparents' age group or my parents' age group because the medical care. So so literally, we've got to think about living to 100, which is why you do need a superannuation plan for sure. Yes, you do need a good financial plan because you want to have quality of life to 100 years. Yeah. Now, I talked to well, not about lifespan, because lifespan is how long you live. I talk to people about health span. So yeah. health span is how long you stay healthy during your life. And what we're trying to do is push out that number so that people are living healthy in their 80s, healthy in their 90s. There are certain populations in the world where that's happening, you know, like mm -hmm. in Okinawa Island in, in Japan, where the average age group of people is 92, 93. They've been studied, and it's healthy eating wow. and exercise, Tai Chi and, and natural diet. You know, and, and social integration where elderly people still get together every day. So, so the format of those sort of older population groups, if we had that in society, given that we've still got to run commerce and we've still got to have businesses, but suddenly this ability to, to, to um, you know, to exercise and, and live to 90 to 100 is, is very real. Yeah. And no, I'm glad you're repeating it as well because this is stuff that I think about and talk about all the time, but listening to you talk about it, it's really, you know, making it hit home for me. Um, and it, it, it's just insane. And it made me even think before how you're saying in these other cultures where, you know, you're saying the example of the average um, age of 92, um, it's unbelievable. We live in these advanced societies where to get the quality of life we need, it doesn't, it's something available to everyone. It's not something that you need to have an increased status or, you know, the most amount of money for or whatever it is. It's just everyone can do it. And we don't need, as much as we're told we need to be happy and to have a healthy life. We're, we're, we've overcomplicated everything. It's crazy. Look, people have been preaching that message for some time and people don't listen. And, and I know that you believe in that. 
Mm, Something mm. that's life out there, which is simple, like home cooking, exercise with your family, reading with your family. Being cooped up has actually created this necessary re- reset of what's important in life, especially when health is suddenly the trigger for that. Because we're talking yeah. about health, is when I'm talking about. So this corona health scare has really made people reevaluate a lot of what's important. You've got to entertain yourself with your family. You know, you know what? You can do it. But as I said, you know, I've come from a fairly basic background. I grew up on a, on a rural property. I, you know, I'm, I came from a, a pretty humble family background. And I think you should never lose sight of how basic stuff is important in life, and whether it's just eating well, spending time with family, spending time with friends. And, and just happiness is being in the right place at the right time. You know, making sure that you, you're enjoying what you do. It's not about coveting something else that someone else does or someone else wants to do. It's an internal thing. It's not a. It's not a business. Exactly. Thing. Exactly. Yeah. Absolutely. And I think you know you learn a lot of those values from how we grow up, the values that we're taught, the experiences that we had, and society tries to teach us that we need to get happiness from the external, which is never going to work. It all comes from internal, but um, that's the the really tricky thing. And, you know, one of the things I think really needs to just change long-term is we need to be educated from, you know, the beginning from primary school about all of this stuff and parenting needs to change and you know, all a global educational move movement that is very slowly happening, but for problems to be prevented long term, I really think it's going to have to take a, a big shift, a massive shift. Yeah, look, it's not going to be quick. I mean, the best <clears> thing is <throat> you know take time to achieve. You know. Yeah, yeah. This is like a almost like a human mindset change across. I mean, some cultures live very simply and very happily, and no material possessions. I mean, I was lucky enough during my postgraduate time to, to live in East Africa for a while in Tanzania, Ethiopia and Kenya. And part of that was selfish motivated, Nick, because I was interested in the black athletes and I wanted to see their lifestyle right. and how they grew up and, you know, the talent identification programs in the six and seven-year-olds because, again, to be specific, everyone talked about the Kenyans and Ethiopians being good because they lived at altitude. And, mm. and I, I thought it's got to be more than that. And they have such a simple lifestyle. I mean, they do run to and from school at six and seven-year-olds in bare feet. They grow all the food that they eat, right? They're actually just farmers, right? So they're not wealthy people. And they grow their own fruit and vegetables. They grow their, they have their own goats. And they were motivated by wanting to make something of their life. So to make a short story, you know, East African athletes have a very simple lifestyle, but it's a combination of healthy living, nutrition, and motivation to what they do. There's no reason in the, our part of the world why we shouldn't be going back to that basic healthy lifestyle. You can still be living in a metropolitan city and still be in a corporate lifestyle, but you should you know, take stock of what, what is that keeps people healthy. Um, and that's, that's part of the message. And that's a, a very, very powerful message. We've, yeah, just as a bit of a summary here, what would be, if we're going to say sort of a as a really practical tool, what would be the sort of number one message you would, for people right now with what's going on in the world and moving forward as a practical tip, what would, you know, you give as a bit of a summary? You mean as a health tip for them? Yeah, sorry, as a health tip, yep. Look, I, I think it's just to really look at your own environment of the things that you've got access to doing to make it something that you can reliably keep doing. So I think being physically active, and you don't have to be a runner, you don't have to go to the gym, you don't have to have a bike. I mean, it's movement. And so there's all sorts of ways that you can look at some movement, even just using the stairs more at work or parking a bit further. 
know, when you go to Bunnings or you go to the supermarket, people want the part that's closest to the doorway, Nick. I say to them, get the part that's yeah. furthest away from the doorway. I like that, yeah. There's an extra 500 steps you're going to take, right? So don't go for the nearest park. Go for the furthest park. Park two streets away from your train station and walk to the train if you if you get train commuting. So so look at ways of the incidental exercise in your life. You don't have to say, oh, I have, don't have a personal trainer. I don't belong to a health club. It doesn't matter. We're talking about moving. Um, you know, food and nutrition stuff is pretty obvious. So I don't want to go too deep into that. But obviously, we've got the choices with that. And it's okay to have some selfish time in the week. It's personal health protection we're talking about. So getting out by yourself and doing a walk or having some meditation time. So I think just adapt some form of health practice in, in your week. It doesn't have to be daily, but it has to be most days of the week. Consistency is the key. And the other thing I think is just be socially, I know it's a weird time to be saying this, Nick, but, but have some really some social interaction. Have a good, reliable group of friends. You don't need a thousand close friends. I mean, if you're lucky enough to have a thousand close friends, good on you. But all, most of us have two or three really close friends in life. Exactly. And I think nowadays we've got to the stage where people can open up and share their anxieties or share things that aren't going well with them. Have a confidence. Have a mentor. Have somebody that you know that you can you can be raw towards, right? Someone that you can open up. That's not going to yep. judge you. It doesn't even have to be a family member. So, so I think the ability to have this sort of um, social, reliable group that's a confidant, as I said, that you've got in life is is, is really important at this at this time going forward. Absolutely. No, thank you so much for that and for sharing everything. Um, I finish each one of these just with some really sort of quick fire questions. Um, just yeah, just sort of one word answers to these, if that's okay. But um, or whatever comes to mind. I'm known for one word answers, Nick. You know me well enough. Well, give what whatever you want. We'll give it a go. See what comes up. So the first one I've got is uh, best childhood memory. Uh, rural life on a farm property. Yep. Nice. Um, what do you think's the biggest burden on mental health in society today? Um, the stigma of, of people still being prepared to put their hand up and admit that they're struggling because they're worried about being judged. Yeah, I agree. Where do you see mental health in 10 years' time? Well advanced from where we are now. I think the last 10 years has been incredible steps. I think we're slowly getting there, and I, I think we are now realising it's just a natural part of the medical world that people have. We accept that arthritis, we accept heart disease mm-hmm. as being we just have to accept that mental health is there. But hopefully life, sorry, long answer, Nick, but lifestyle and the pressures of life ease back so the people that have had so much mental health stress, because they get back to basics, they'll do better with it without having to need um, professional medical care. But right now I think mm, it'll be better. Mm. Yeah, like we talked about before, hopefully it becomes more about the preventative than the, than the reactive, yeah. Um, what's your personal definition of happiness? Oh, gee, that's tough. <laughs> it's a tough one, yeah. Happiness is just being in a comfortable place where you feel like you're getting the best out of yourself. It's not a material thing. It's not a physical place. I think happiness is just knowing that you're you're getting the best out of yourself at what, you, what you're doing. Um, and, you know, you have your days up and down when you're happy, less happy. But overall, it's, it's just about finding the thing that you enjoy doing and, and making sure you put your best effort into it. Yeah, I love that. Uh, final one, what would you say is the most courageous thing that you've ever done? It <laughs> <laughs> might probably have a lot of them, but yeah. Yeah, a little bit of courage, Nick, but um, certainly one of, the, you know, one of the bravest decisions I made was to 
go into the specialty of sports medicine when no one else was doing it in Australia. I was advised against it by my senior teachers at medical school that it was just a fad field, um, that there really wasn't a future. I, I had the opportunity to do a number of specialties when I got into the hospital situation. And, and I stuck to my intuition that I made a decision, no, whilst there was no postgraduate training program in Australia, this is why I went mm. overseas, I wanted to pursue sports medicine. So I made a big decision to walk away from the opportunities in Australia that were more traditional medical opportunities. Um, and I said, no, I want to do what I want to do. It might have been a stupid decision at the time. It was a brave decision. I, I made it you know, at a relatively young age. And I think, wow, how did I know to do that? But again, I just believed that I wanted to do something that I enjoyed rather than what other people wanted me to do. I think that's an amazing answer to sum all of this up on and it's really about you know following your gut and it's more relevant than ever with all the choices that we all have now just you know being true to yourself it sums up everything you've spoken about today and I think it's um, an amazing message to give to everyone that's going to listen to this and uh, I just want to say to you thank you so much for coming and having this chat I think it's invaluable what we've spoken about and um, I majorly respect you and what you do and feel really lucky to have been able to do this interview with you. Well Nick again congratulations because you know as I said we've known each other many 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 years and I've known your family and I'm I'm really proud of what you've done I I know this has been an incredible um, you know sort of challenge for you to sort of to go into this direction at, at a time it's so timely that you're doing it and and well done and i really enjoyed our chat appreciate it mate thank you cheers this episode of move your mind was produced and edited by tim boozer thanks to peter larkins for joining me today for move your mind ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row dreaming of something better well Hello Fresh is your guilt free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.